Number 145. A woman once in, informed me a trifle smugly that in a former, I love this one, that in a former incarnation she had been Mary Queen of Scots. That's interesting, I replied. Tell me how that, how did you receive this information? Well, it seemed a certain psychic, in, in quotes here, had told her so. Soon afterward, another woman told me the same thing. When I asked her about it, she said she'd received the news from the same source. I called the two women together and repeated their stories to them. I then asked them, now, how can, you bo how can both of you have been Mary, Queen of Scots? They realized, of course, that they'd been fooled. <laughs> what I want to say in relating the story is this. Don't listen to every claim by people who say they have special knowledge about you. As to your own past incarnations, over, over, moreover, be guided above all by self-knowledge and by your own intuition. What does it really matter, after all, who you were in the past? Whoever that was, you are still yourself and have only one challenge before you that is worth considering, how to get out of delusion and find God. Be guided above all by that need, which is eternal. Um, I've told you before that um, I had this very difficult relationship with a woman at a non-village for many years, and I, I had a, a, a past life dream in which um, I knew all the miserable things she had done to me, which is why I disliked her so much. She went to a psychic and found out all the miserable things I had done to her, which is why she doesn't like me much. My dream I know was true, and Swami confirmed it, and I think hers was also true about me. And they, they were both of us, both of us were pretty unforgivably horrible. I mean, like, on a really big scale. Not just kind of like a mean sister who kept the dollies for herself or something like that, but big stuff. So we were using it mutually to justify our really terrible attitudes toward each other. And Swami got wind of the whole thing. And uh, he, he brought us together, and he, he said, I'm inclined to think that all of this information is true. And it wasn't pretty. And, but he said, but, neither, but both of you have suffered greatly from your bad actions. And neither of you would ever be capable of behaving like that again. Which was just such a simple answer, wasn't it? And I, rem I realized in that point how much of the time we, ju we use those things to justify. You know, and I, there was another person that I had to work with a lot who was difficult for me. Let me phrase it differently. I was difficult for that person. <laughs> but then, therefore, it was also difficult for me. But the person prided themselves on being very sensitive and was always picking up energies, you know, from here and there and picking up past lives. And I don't think it was false. I think it was actually a genuine psychic ability. But it was always used to sink the ship instead of to make it go forward. It was always used as a reason why Naturally, I feel this way because when I had that dream of the past life, it was so vivid and it was so terrible and it was so unreconciled in so many ways. It, it, it happened in the time when people were driving horses and carriages. So it was at least that time ago. I mean, maybe a whole yuga cycle, I don't know, but it was at least a while ago. And... Uh, but it, like, it was like yesterday. It was like, it was so, not even because I dreamed it, but the impression that it left on me, which I had not been able to give a story to until I had the dream, 
was as if it was yesterday. It was like if somebody came out at you with a knife, you know, in the morning, you would be wary of them in the afternoon. You would want to know if they were armed and if you saw any hint of a weapon, you'd be really careful. Well, I was behaving as if what had happened hundreds, at least hundreds of years ago, had happened an hour ago. And, and for a long time without even knowing it. Because some scars are real. If we, and vrittis are real, if we, if we haven't let it go, then it's still with us. And then we have all this reason. And it, I, I played out a very interesting cycle with myself that took many years to play out. I too am very sensitive. I have a real, you know, I just, I have extra nerve endings, I suppose, or fewer layers of skin or whatever it might be. Just born that way. Palm readers, you know, I have all this stuff in my hands. Who knows? Who cares? But I'm, I'm like that. And for, you know, 25 of the 45 years, years I've been on the path, I considered it a virtue. And I, I actually, I proud would not be the right word, but I, I, I dined out on my sensitivity. You know, it was kind of like, it was just the way I was. And uh, it changed one day. I have to thank Raghu, Robert Clark, for it. Raghu and I were doing a class on affirmations. And for those of you who don't know Raghu, he's over six feet tall and he's a big man, big bass voice. He's just a, a big person. He moves through the world with a lot of energy. We were sharing the class and he was choosing the affirmation and we were going to do this affirmation leading this class. And I'm sitting next to Raghu and I'm a lot smaller than him. We're sitting right next to each other. I have this little voice. He has this great big voice. He chose an affirmation that went with his temperament. I am brave. I am strong. Nothing can stop me. I have the power of the universe. And he was just booming it out into this small room. First it occurred to me, if I was in a room with a typewriter for a thousand years, I would never choose that affirmation. <laughs> it would never have crossed my mind because after all, I'm delicate and I'm sensitive. And, but he naturally thought about that kind of force because that's his natural bob. But it crossed my mind that what I considered an asset was actually a liability. Like, what does it serve me to be so delicate? And why, if everything is a gift from God, would this ultra-sensitivity actually be considered a spiritual quality? Do you see what I mean? Not awareness. I wasn't talking about awareness. I was talking about delicacy. And I, I made a resolution you know, right in that moment, oh my goodness, I've been fighting the wrong battle in the wrong direction. And so, coming back to what Master's talking about here, with these, you know, past lives, things that we get, they don't, they don't even really exist. Sometimes they're amusing. Uh, sometimes they're helpful. I'll tell you another one from another psychic. She, I don't think she was right on this time. I used to have terrible hay fever at Ananda village. I was allergic to the grass that grows there, especially at uh, the, where the community is. When I, where I lived over at Ayodhya, there wasn't as much of it. So I was pretty much okay, but I worked over in the community area and for about six, or, six weeks or so. It was pretty regular, six weeks. I just went down. I was just always... The only place where I got any relief was standing inside the walk-in refrigerator at what was then the market. I'd just go stand in the refrigerator for a while. 
So I was the guinea pig for all sorts of different cures. The, the simple solution of antihistamines never crossed my mind because we were such purists at that time. You just, you know, you just didn't use medicine. So, I, so there was this one Ayurvedic cure that, the, that I got one year from an, an Ayurvedic doctor. Yeah, he was a, he was a real doctor. And I, I, I gathered flowers and I burned them. And then I burned them and I, I collected the smoke and the ash on this pan and then I scraped it off. Then I did something with it. Then I mixed it with honey or something like that. And then I took a teaspoon and it had no effect. The fact that I'm not allergic to flowers should have crossed my mind earlier <laughs> that I'm actually allergic to grass. And I eat bee pollen and, you know, just everything that you could think of it and zero effect. So in some context, I was getting this reading from this woman who's actually a pretty reliable psychic, relatively speaking. This is the story she told me, that I used to be a poppy farmer somewhere in Tibet or China or somewhere like that. And that's how I made my living as I grew poppies and bundled them up and sold them. And I did that, you know, that was how I supported my family, whoever I was. And then at some point later in my life, I found out that all the poppies that I was sending off to market were being made into opium and that it was what I was actually doing was punishing and hurting people. And so as a result, whenever the flowers bloom, I feel that I have to make myself unwell. The fact that I'm not allergic to flowers seems still irrelevant to me. (laughs) But anyway, that was always the story of why I had hay fever was because I'd been an opium farmer a long, long time ago. It, I mean, who knows? The same woman told me <clears throat> that with this mouth I have, I helped start the French Revolution, which seems a little more likely to me than that I was an opium farmer. <laughs> and the reason that I talk all the time about Dharma now is because I've used it badly in the past, and I have a lot of ground to make up. And the French Revolution was probably just one of the revolutions I started. <laughs> one time right after we bought this building, we wanted to do something with our sign in front. And, you know, we were just being random, and somebody needed to go down to the Palo Alto City place to talk to them about the sign. And just carelessly, they sent me. And I'm sitting in front of this rather, well, slightly tamasic young woman who's just basically telling me everything we can't do, just kind of sort of randomly because she had the power to tell me we couldn't do it. And she finally says, you're a church, why do you need a sign anyway? You know, just kind of things like that. At which point, this just white, white hot rage, literally, just started rising in me. And I had pictures of firebombs. And, you know, it was like I was... I was just enraged. That's the only way I can put it. And I I just got out of her office and just came home and said, what were we thinking? Why did we send me? So Karen Gamow went and spent one year working it out (laughs) with the city, you know, to get the signs all straightened out. But it was just like, yeah. So French Revolution, for sure. You know, you little twerp. How dare you tell me what to do? I was so (laughs) furious about it. That's all beside the point. The point being, whether we're Mary Queen of Scots or not, we have a tremendous amount behind us. And it's helpful to know if it's helpful to know. know, It was helpful for me to know. I think I've only ever had one dream of a past life. I've intuited others, but that's the only time I ever went back and lived one ever. Well... Perhaps not exactly true. It was certainly the most dramatic. It was very helpful to me, extremely helpful to know. 
At first, I used it wrongly. But after I got over that, it taught me so much about reincarnation and so much about unfinished business. It also taught me really strongly to try to stay current. You really do not want to leave the planet with debts like that. Because all that happens is you're so confused later because there's no context. Your feeling is so true. And so you just twist the context to make what you feel fit what's happening when it's really not anything about this context. It's just unfinished business. So it's just, it's a really good idea. Yes, Ekavir? I, I forgot if it's a yama or niyama where, where you perfected a particular quality uh-huh. and you can recall all your incarnations. Perfect non-attachment. Why would that be a power? Um, it, it has to do, was it the not receiving of gifts? Is that the one where it is? Or, and, it's non-attachment. It's non-attachment. Just, non-attachment yeah, yeah, it's just like, see, the only thing that makes it, the, the reason why I'm still, or still mad about what happened to my body at that time is because I think that everything that happened to me concerns me personally. Because I identified with that experience, I identified with the pain that happened, I identified with the injustice of it, and I carried anger, injustice, um, you did me wrong, I'm going to get back at you, I was your victim. And all of that just ties you to this limited identification, instead of having a sense that all, everything that happens is fair. Nobody's really doing anything to anyone. It's my own inner vibrations that are... Well, in the Patanjali class, I just happened to read... Somebody made reference to it. Somebody made a comment which came to me about a certain minute in Patanjali, so I went to look at it just because I was curious about his comment. The Patanjali Sutra, which I don't remember the number, referred to anything that causes, um, I think the phrase was, a mental jerk. In other words, anything that can happen to you that causes you to recoil um, is, is a sign of your limitation, or however Patanjali explained it. But I thought about that a lot, because if we're completely centered in God, no matter what happens, there's no individual self that recoils like this. So as soon as we have stopped identifying sufficiently with the individual, then we know ourselves as we really are, which is all those incarnations. You can remember all of them because you're no longer defined by any one of them. I'm, I was still deeply defined by that experience, so much so that when I met the protagonist from that experience, I was furious. I was angry, tremendous uh, distrust, you know, just com- complete dissonance that I projected onto the present. Now that I'm reviewing my life um, because of the book I'm writing, and I go back to that period, which was the 70s, and I have notes about some of the exchanges and so on like that, I think, what was wrong with me? Seriously, like, many things that I remembered in a certain way, I look at them now and I think, that was nothing. But I was so captured by that, that I I couldn't see it clearly. I just, I was having a true inner experience that I just forced onto the world around me. I made the, I made my perception match 
my inner experience. Even though both of us had changed and neither of us were that person that we were still reacting to. There wasn't even, there wasn't even any malice to react to. The malice was gone. When, uh, one moment, when uh, Bella was dying of cancer, Bella Potapovskaya uh, Bingham, she was called then, and uh, in the last days of her life, when she was lying there, she said, she said to someone who was with her, she, I think she said thousands of faces are passing in front of me, and I have been every one of them. She says, it's just, uh, you know, it's impossible for me to identify with this one, the body she was about to leave, given how many faces she was looking at that had all been her own face. So that very detachment just, because it was, she was near death, but also she was a very advanced soul. But as death came, she just detached so completely from the body she was in that she just saw them all, and it made her even less, you know. So I, so this one goes away. I mean, big deal compared to what's happened so much before. Does that make sense? Did you want to? What you have to? Pardon me. Paul, you need to speak into the microphone because a lot of people watch this on the recording, and that's the whole reason. Okay. Okay, I'm sure Pashri Haran. Okay. So in olden days, in Indian mythology, it says that the kings, they used to do the yagna. Uh So that is for the evil spirits to go away. Same way, when we have bad feelings, bad experiences, I think that's an example that how to see that those bad examples can also be when we do yagna, we just forget that this is something which has gone into the fire, it just goes out of our consciousness also. Of course, once in a way, on and on, those bad experiences come back to us. But keep reminding of those things helps us to forget some bad experiences which we didn't anticipate, but it just happened. And more than that, yagya is is an external ritual that has power, but the true yagya is uh, the spiritual eye and the practice of kriya because what you really are needing to do is to dissolve the vritti that holds the memory. And you can do it to a certain extent if you put enough energy into the external ritual will will inform the inner reality, but it's the inner reality that needs to be transformed. And so that's the the true fire rite, so to speak, is the internal reality. And, And also there's a lot of power. I mean, people burn things all the time when they want to be free of them. I've done it myself, and we do it every Sunday. Yeah. You know, we burn something because it, it, an external gaze upon this light is a symbol of God's love. I mean, external symbols help to reinforce the inner reality, but it's when the inner reality changes. There's no, a ritual is not, is not magic. You can't merely just do it and then, therefore, I'm free. You're only free if you put sufficient energy into it or have sufficient faith into it or have a saint in front of you doing it who takes your karma in the process. There's lots of ways it can work. And besides which, it's, it's fun. <laughs> you know, it's like it's more fun than lots of other things that we do, <laughs> is uh, that kind of activity. Any other questions or comments? All right. Oh, yes, Saranya behind you. Who has the microphone? Thank you. Thank you. In some situations... Um, you may not feel that you're the victim, that some, someone has done something bad to you, 
but rather that you have caused someone else pain. Ah, yes, there's that side of it too, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I'm not the, I'm, yes, I'm not the victim, I'm the perpetrator. Uh-huh. But unintentional perpetrator. A person can feel pain when in fact, you know, your behavior didn't, wasn't with that intention. Although, you know, you never know how far back you right, go in and <laughs> the intention was there somewhere. But in approaching um, the end of life, I, you know, I wonder about those kinds of things. What do you do with that kind Actually, of... Actually, I face that directly, very directly. Swami gave me a very direct answer to that question because I inappropriately advised someone. The, the advice was true, but uh, I, shouldn't, I should have kept my mouth shut. The person reacted very badly and... Uh, this was again on the 70s and took Swami aside and you know told him told Swamiji the man's interpretation of what I said which was not in fact of course what I said what he said I said was too ridiculous I never would have said it even in my worst moments um, but he, t- he told Swami all these terrible things that I'd said and uh, wanted me to be dismissed from whatever position I had and so Swami uh, came to me and said so-and-so said that you said so-and-so and I looked at Swami and I said you know I didn't say that he says of course you didn't <laughs> um, then I resigned because I was just fed up at that point but he wouldn't accept my resignation um, then he told me you must think not only of the accuracy of what you're saying but people's readiness to hear it but then he said God reads the heart He said, you must be as clear and clean as you can in your intentions. But you can't always control how people are going to take it. Because they have all their own filters going. So, in that particular case, really, my intention was clean. My judgment was poor, but my intention was clean. As a person I really loved and I really wanted to help him. I was just dumb enough to think he would understand what I said. I was stupid, but I wasn't malicious. I really had really wanted to help him. It really was sincere. So Swami essentially said, it's really his problem. You told him the truth, it's his problem. Um, And so that's what I've always followed ever since then. And then you have to learn to be really sensitive inside yourself. And I certainly have learned over the years that oftentimes I really am innocent. And there's just nothing I can do. I really, I had a pure intention, even I had good judgment, but it just caused something to ripple down, sometimes chaotic and terrible. But I was just a catalyst for something that had to happen. I I really was not at fault. And at other times, I can just feel that little bit of, um, well, impurity is the best word I can think of, that little either ego or... uh, arrogance or a little tiny pleasure in getting back and then I have to take it in proportion and sometimes I'm not 100% clean but I'm clean enough that I still know it really, I'm not responsible for this it's just their karma and they have to take it and then after a while I've gotten pretty comfortable with that so even when things blow up which they have blown up and I've been in the middle of them blowing up once I, just a huge cascading cycle of terrible things happened from, a, from a, an actual inadvertent use of the wrong word on my part. And, you know, I was accused of, well, even if you didn't mean it, it was a subconscious slip. 
I really don't think so. I think God just wanted a rock to be kicked down the mountain. And so he just used me to kick it down the mountain. And I watched it, and I was the cause, presumably, but I wasn't. So, but you have to, you know, you have to get comfortable with yourself and be honest enough to tell. Fair enough? Yeah. But that's hard. It's really hard. I, I'm, I'm, always, I'm very, very quick to take responsibility when I do feel responsible. But, but Swami has told me I sometimes take it too fast and too much. And so I've learned to back off a little bit because it just, I become anxious and I want it to be fixed. But that's not being centered. You know. Very good question. Anyone else? Remember, uh, it was just a couple of weeks or so ago, you were talking about how you used to spend a lot of time trying to manage other people's lives. Which, does that hook up with what you were trying to explain to us now? And how, how Well, I used you... to try to boss them around. That was something quite different. Yeah. No, I mean... <laughs> but no, manage was different. Manage was the mistaken belief that whereas I can deal with my karma, nobody else can deal with theirs unless I get in and carry half the burden for them. And I don't mean like the, like the guru carries it. I just mean like doing their laundry and driving them around and making carrot juice and, you know, just taking over the functions of their life because how could they ever get along unless I did? And I, that I used to do a lot of because I could, because I had the energy to do it. But one day I realized that I, it, I was doing it out of anxiety rather than out of genuine selflessness. And that's when I realized that I just really thought they couldn't manage their own lives. I didn't respect them enough to think they could handle their own karma. That doesn't mean you're not there as a friend and offering to help, but the, my, the movement of energy was not centered from me. And if where there is dharma, there is victory... If you're moving not centered, even if you look good, uh, you're, you're not where you should be and it will not work out as well as it will work out if you move from Dharma. So. Yeah, I think uh, many parents take on that, I don't know, they call it, what is it called? Hovering? Helicopter. <laughs> Helicoptering. Yeah. Where... We feel like, you know, we should always try to mitigate whatever karma our children are headed for, thinking that, you know, we know better. (laughs) Yeah, there you have it. And, I mean, I actually first learned it because I was trying to do it for my parents. That's when I saw it first. I I was running around trying to make my parents respond to their situation as if it were my situation, and they didn't like it. And then I finally tried to just, I realized that I was just panicked all the time. You know, they were in their 80s. They had exactly the karma that they had been working for for 80 years. And I just wanted to grab it and turn it in another direction. And uh, they, they resented it, as you might well imagine. And then I tried to just trust them. And then tried to see how I could aid them in following the path that they were going to follow. And I became much more helpful. We all got along really well after that because I wasn't always trying to boss them around. With your kids, I don't have kids. I can only imagine. I have one nephew 
And that's been enough of a look at what it feels like. I mean, I, I understand why God didn't give me kids. I probably just never would have done anything else because it's just such an overwhelming temptation. So I said to someone recently with whom I have a parental relationship, even though a karmic sense of this is my child, I just said, I have an almost overwhelming desire to give you money. I said, if I had a lot of money, I'd give you a lot of money. And they said, too bad. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't have much money, but just I have this overwhelming desire just to give you money. And this would make me so happy to give you money. I can just see how you feel that way. <laughs> but I don't have it, so I can't give it. And a little piece of me knows that this is not, they don't even need it. But just I just want to do it. So I can really see what a mess it could all be. I have great respect for all of you who are managing to walk the line. Okay, any other questions? <laughs> okay. Okay, this is your remembering from two weeks ago. So we won't even try to tie it to 145. Yeah, I want okay. to try to follow along just a little bit more with what you said about the difference between trying to manage somebody and actually being centered and and helping. The, being afraid and acting from fear yes. and being centered and acting from right. true inspiration. That's the difference. Okay. okay. So, I have a friend, the person who has been cutting my hair. This is a, a, to illustrate my question. Okay. She, I've been going to this lady for 20 years. She's a really nice person. But her, her life is kind of one disaster after another. And I'm almost always when I'm sitting in the chair and she's cutting my hair, I'm thinking, well, if you just did this or if you just did that, it would be great. And sometimes I will, and it's usually along the lines of adjust your consciousness or your health or something. And once in a while I will mention something and it, she doesn't, it doesn't resonate with her. So then I'll sit there and just try to pray for her quietly and send out some blessings. So I started wondering, well, so she's just, she's not, you know, anywhere near like us, but, but she's a, you know, a Christian person. But does it help to pray for people when they're just bound in their karma oh, yes, and being it blown around? Pray. That was what, I mean, you've heard me say it. That's what I did with my parents, finally. Because I realized that I was so anxious about their situation and I had to do something with that anxiety. I could recognize that my, be my judgment was completely warped because of that anxiety, but I wasn't able to just put it into the fire and get rid of it, right? So I was holding it. So I turned it into the prayer, and the prayer was. And this is the other thing. You know, we were talking about this some this morning. Difficult things happen to people because people have to understand that they, if they are not aligned with divine law, then they will have the consequences of not being aligned with divine law. And this is a very long reincarnational cycle. So the woman who cuts your hair, who has advanced to the point of loving Jesus, which is wonderful, nonetheless has, still has a whole lot of karma to work out and attitudes to adjust. So she keeps moving in the wrong direction and something hits her. We call that bad. We call that pain. We call that suffering. But all it is, is God just saying, not that direction, honey, go this way. Not this one, darling, go that way. Oh, sweetheart, you're off again. We're going to just have to keep pushing on you. So the first thing is, why is that bad? Because she's not free, and she's going to have to become free. 
ask yourself, how do I learn? I learn because I think I'm on the road and I'm actually in the ditch. And we get the consequences of that and then we get back on the road. Watch our own life this time and imagine all the others, just what I, where I started. Both of you have suffered a great deal from those wrong actions, so you're not going to do it again. Well, we did it. We thought it was a good idea to be just horrid to one another. But now we suffered from that. So you're watching this woman suffer from the consequences of her wrong action. Where is even the cause for tension? She's just studiously moving along, learning her lessons. So I dealt with my anxiety, with my mother's Parkinson's and my father's trying desperately to cope with it by saying to Divine Mother, with a great deal of heat, whatever it is you're trying to teach them, you need to give them the wisdom, the devotion, and the receptivity to learn it. And I would add sometimes, because I can't take it. Because that was true. You know, you must help them learn. I, didn't, I stopped trying to change their karma. I just put out a lot of force to ask God to make it work for them. To just keep them moving. You know, because I realized that everything that was happening to them was exactly appropriate. You get this strange idea. You see, this was my parents was so dramatic. Here I am, whatever I was at the time when all this was happening. I don't know, 50. Maybe I was 50. They died a number of years ago. And I'm full of energy and I can manage everybody's life and I have all these really smart ideas and, I mean, master's ideas and I could really, really help. And my mother said to me once, let's see, how did she put it? Let me think what she said. Something on the, on the lines of, I can't remember it exactly, but something on the lines of, I know a lot of people listen to you, but I don't. <laughs> Not meanly, just as a matter of fact. Thank you, God, I didn't matter to me at all. I just looked, or I was trying to get them, I think it was more just like I was trying to get them to do something, and she just made it clear to me that your opinion means nothing. And I said, oh, I said, so many people take me so seriously. I said, it's so relaxing, you know, just to be completely disregarded so I can just, there's no, I don't even have to try. And it, it just, but that's what I was dealing with. It was just nothing I could do except to be cheerful, which I finally figured out. That was my job. I was just supposed to go down there and be cheerful, not afraid and cheerful and do what they asked me. But, I w- but what I was starting to say is I projected as if, as if it, like in a funny movie, we had just switched bodies and like my entire consciousness and all my karma if it was in my mother's body, if it was in my father's body, this is how I would feel and this is what I would do. And I kept trying to get them to do that. And then one day it occurred to me, their whole dharmic trajectory is so different. They walked here inch by inch by inch by inch. And it's comfortable to them. I didn't mean it was pleasant, but it was so exactly right. It was comfortable. It was only I who was flipped out about it. But it wasn't happening to me. It was happening to them and it was perfectly right. But they were being redirected in ways that were very important and I wanted God to work on them. And I know that my commitment to them and my determination through Master that they were going to be helped, can't tell you how, but I know it was there. I'm so sensitive, I knew it was there. I know their lives were made completely different. But nothing happened, except at the very end, when my mother 
when the Parkinson's went to her brain and she started having uh, fits. She, when we were in the, I've told some of you this, but I'll say it again. She, she died, she, that only happened to her for a few weeks, literally, and then she died. But that's how people die from Parkinson's, it goes to the brain. So we had gone to the emergency room and she was just this little huddled figure sleeping in this bed in the emergency room with all those curtains around. And, uh, oh, whoa, I just said, <laughs> I said to all the gurus, I kind of lined them up, and then we were alone in this room and I lined them up mentally. I said, I've done a lot for you guys and now I'm asking a favor. <laughs> I said, you get this woman out of this body. I mean, we're, we're not going down this road. This is too horrible. We put up with so much. We are not going here. Two weeks later, she was gone. She just had a convulsion, lost consciousness, and then just left. My sister called. Mother died. I I said, good for her. It was not a response. Good for her. She just let go and left that body. But I think they did it. I said, I'm calling in all my chips. (laughs) So, yes, makes a big difference. I don't know what you've lingered if I hadn't said that prayer, I don't know. But I think there was a relationship. Enough already. I've been patient with you, you know. Now you've got to do something for her. So does prayer work? Absolutely. People. I, just use, I use the term regular people to describe people that aren't why don't you use a, a nicer word like okay. there's uh, people who are committed and understand self-realization and people who are not consciously okay. aware of self-realization okay. um, aren't people who are not conscious of self-realization conscious, consciously aware consciously of aware of self-realization because they're all on the same aren't path. they for the most part being pushed along no by no their no karma? not Is human it? beings only I mean animals Karma is automatic, but once you yeah. reach the human level, no, no, you're using your willpower all the time to make decisions. Everybody does what they think. That's master's basic premise. Everybody's trying to increase happiness and escape pain. And it always seems like a good idea. That's just the craziest thing about it. It always seems like a good idea. That man who drove the truck onto the sidewalk and killed all those people, he wouldn't have done it if somewhere he didn't think it would, e- probably in his case, ease his suffering. But that's sort of the same. And it just, he was mistaken. And now he is going to have to learn all the consequences of that rather grave mistake. But that's what you see all around you. People are learning the consequences of their own grave mistakes. Me, I'm learning them. That's all just, I'm learning every day the consequences of my own grave mistakes. There you have it. So that's why the best prayer is whatever it is, Lord, just move it along. You know, make me capable of understanding. That's the best prayer of all. Just, you know, give me the wisdom and the devotion and the receptivity to whatever it is you're trying to teach me. I can't hear you. You know, speak louder. And you can say, and perhaps less painfully, but at least louder. You know, to me or to them, we're all in it together. Well, good advice. I'm talking to myself. I'm going to listen to this minute of this one, you know. (laughs) You guys say it back to me the next time you see me sulking about. Looking like not so good. (laughs) All right, are we ready? Number 146. Desire and anger are the true greatest barriers to wisdom. They destroy a person's peace of mind 
and obstruct the flow of his understanding. When anger seizes you, you may think, oh, this feels wonderful. In exhilaration, you may do something terrible, not even counting the cost. That is how murders often get committed. Later, however, comes retribution. The murderer, in turn, finds his own life completely ruined. Desire, again, confuses the mind. Its frustration is what produces anger. It is important that you always remain inwardly calm and non-attached. Accept with unruffled mind whatever comes. That was the jerk I was referring to with Patanjali. Accept with unruffled mind whatever comes, I often say. What comes of itself, let it come. This is just as true for the bad things in life as for the good. Only calmness will give you a sense of correct proportion. It will inspire you to behave with unfailing good sense. Master's words are so good. Unfailing good sense. That really describes it. Let me just see. I, I really loved calmness and a sense of proportion. Because when, you, when we really think about so many things, when I was talking about looking back now and the, the early, my early years at Ananda when I was always so upset with that other person, and I said, now I can't even figure out why. But, but I wasn't calm, and it just everything was out of proportion. Every little word, every little a- a- action just suddenly seemed like this gigantic experience that required so much attention and energy from me. Whereas other people would just go by. They just didn't get... It was the lack of calmness first, which then just confused everything. You know, I remember once, because I, I am and used to be much more excitable, a very good friend of mine just sort of brought up a subject that she knew that I would have a reaction to but said to me, now just stay calm. We have to really think about this. And I, I still vividly remember the way she did that. And I had to think, my gosh, you know, who am I that someone had to say that to me? And it actually, it got my attention, you know, because it was a very serious issue that had to be discussed. And she just didn't want to go through my usual cycle before I came back to where I needed to be. But keeping things in proportion, also, of course, Keeping things in proportion also keeps you calm. And this is the reverse of that, but I... uh, No, that that doesn't fit. I'm going to skip it. But um, I remember Swami trying to explain to me once about my tendency to to, uh, to, to get too excited. It was actually exactly related to this. And he said, he was talking about a certain person, he said, so-and-so does something and you perceive it to be a mistake. Which it may be a mistake. It's a mistake in the sense that it's not the best happiness-producing action. My judgment might not be wrong. That if this person, like you're talking, if they only did this, then everything would work better. So they're making a mistake. But he said, then you quickly elevate the idea of a mistake into, into that that's wrong. And you sort of have all that judgment on it. And it really is just a mistake. It's not really something is wrong. They're just making a mistake. I didn't understand what that meant for a really long time. I couldn't see the difference between just calling something a mistake and declaring that it was wrong. But it's because I got got so excited. 
like they're making a mistake and instead of just calmly thinking, oh, it'll work itself out, sort of, which is much more how I feel now. Oh, well, you know, it wasn't the best, best thing to have done, but it'll work itself out. There's nothing wrong here merely because a person made a mistake, you see. Everybody makes mistakes, including me. And when, but by the same token, and this is actually what Swami was talking to me about, whenever I made a mistake, I immediately elevated it to, I'd done something wrong. And then I'd become guilty, and then I'd become depressed. And, but all I had actually done was just make a mistake. And if I had just remained calm, I would have seen it in proportion. Everybody makes mistakes. That was, oh, he corrected someone once because a week after they'd made a mistake, they were, they were still moping about being depressed, or three days, it wasn't a week. So I said, what are you so depressed about? The woman said, well, a few days ago I did so and so. And his response was, what an egoic reaction. Remember? He said, because you're so shocked that, you, that you're not perfect that three days later you can't put it behind you. He said, of course you're not perfect. Of course you make mistakes. What is there in that to elevate to such a preoccupation for so long? That's a little bit the difference between it being a mistake and being wrong. But that's all remaining calm enough to see it in proportion. So that's very, um, let's see, where did this one start? Let me just back up for a second. Oh yes, murders. <laughs> it goes all the way to murder. You have these, you want, we want things to be a certain way. I mean, that's just, oh my gosh. We want everything to be a certain way. And when we don't get it, we want to push on it. I mean, that's why people murder. You know, you, I'm a drug addict and you have money in your purse and I mean, sometimes people, they just, I want that money and you're in my way. Or, you know, how dare you push me off the sidewalk or be unfaithful to me or whatever it might be. You've done something I don't like, so I'm going to solve it by getting rid of you. And we think it's a good idea at the time, but it isn't. So then we get retribution. So, okay, let's take a break. There was a, a, a stage show called Stomp once. I never, I know, I never saw it, but they just banged on all sorts of things and just did rhythm. Actually, it was very impressive. I like, I, myself, I like rhythm. So I liked all the, you know, they just stomped on all kinds of stuff and just played out rhythms. It was quite fun. Okay. We are at, did we finish? Yes. We're at number 147 now. During the last days of Master's life, Benai R. Sen, the ambassador from India, visited him in Mount Washington. Um, I mean, before I just go on with that, I was enjoying that about uh, Mr. Sen, because this was 1952, and India had been a country since 1948. So this was like, you know, the ambassador, even having an ambassador from India that was an Indian person was, I mean, it was a really big deal. And there's, and also, um, you know, the, the master didn't, not everyone in the Indian community respected Master, which is what the rest of this story is about, um, for various reasons. Who knows? Mostly probably jealousy or orthodoxy, that they might have felt he was violating orthodoxy. Who knows what it really was? I don't know the details. But it's interesting, in a letter from Master to Rajasi, he comments about this ambassador and how refreshing it is because this ambassador respects Master. And how, how much, how grateful, how happy it made Master that 
um, it wasn't that he personally needed to be validated, but it was in the fitness of things that the ambassador would recognize what he would, the work he was doing and the good he was doing for India. So when the ambassador understood and appreciated him, it was very gratifying to Master. And he also seemed to have a high regard for this man in general and thought he was going to do good for India. I'd, and I had, I'd never thought about how recent, you know, the independence of India was and what it meant um, to everyone and what it meant then to be able to welcome the ambassador to America. So a certain man, prominent in the Indian community of Los Angeles, arrived with the ambassador's entourage because, of course, it would have been the leading Indian citizens who would have hosted the man. Plus, he was a, a prominent man in the Indian community. For many years, this man had spoken against the master. Just so odd, isn't it? it I, I think it's, it's very important that people know that these things happen. You know, here's a, because otherwise, the greatness of these great souls is not that nothing ever challenges them. It's the way they respond to the challenges. I was talking about that, was it last, just this past Sunday, about Swamiji and Parameshwari and all of that that happened in how he said, this could be embarrassing, but I choose not to be embarrassed. And that's, I mean, that's a life teaching. Because all of us do things that blow up in our faces, and how do we, it's not so much that they blow up, is how do we respond after they blow up. But if you whitewash and never want to talk about any of the challenges and make it seem like Master just sailed into America and was always, um, everything went his way. The movie Awake in the sense that it documented some of the controversy around Master, uh, did us a great service, really, um, because now we can sort of perceive him as this is the example that even an avatar sets, that he, he steps into the prison of this world with us and has to fight his way through it. And how you fight and how you respond is the point. Otherwise, when things go wrong with us, we think there's something wrong with us. And we don't realize that these things happen. So anyway, so when the master saw him among the guests, he made it a point of saying to him quietly, when out of the earshot of the others, remember, I will always love you. Why don't we work together? Can't you just see him? Here's this man who's, who's well known for years. They're speaking against master. Master just walks right up to him. I love you. Why don't we work together? And not merely, I love you, but why don't we work together? You know, come over for tea and we'll make some projects. A disciple of the master's happened to be standing close by and overheard these words. It turned out also that the moment was captured on film by a photographer. This is the, the, the pictures in the path. Um, one wonders whether this wasn't, for that man, a very poignant moment. He is shown gazing at the master. In his eyes are a mixture of surprise and wonder. Swami's play, The Jewel and the Lotus, wasn't quite based on this man, but it was partly inspired by it. The Jewel and the Lotus has the storyteller many incarnations later, 200 years after Yogananda lived. And he had, had hated the master when the master was alive and converted to loving him just um, before he died, but so close to his death in the story that he was never able to make it up to the master. And he prayed to, in the story, he prayed to be able to remember his past uh, treachery and, and make it up. 
And then after all these incarnations in in the story, he finally comes back to Yogananda and gets to say, I love you too. So this is, this is the pr- projection that Swami's made from this incident of, of Master. But you see, for Master, because he's completely detached and he's completely calm inside, he just realizes that this man is making a mistake. There's nothing really wrong with the man and there's nothing even wrong about the situation, but the man is making a mistake. He's not acting in his best interest. So with just complete impersonal detachment, Master kind of is just trying to coax him away from making this error. You know, why do you live this way? It does not making you happy. I love you. We could be friends. Let's be friends. And just, if you can imagine, just as it's described there, a mist- what does he say? A mixture of wonder, surprise, and wonder. Because somebody who's been putting out that much negativity, you just expect it to come back. You don't expect it. Swamiji had a, had a detractor, a man who was just so intensely against Swamiji. And uh, at one point, Swami met him in uh, the lobby of a, there was a concert of some kind in a local town. The man had lived at Ananda for a time and then moved to town, became very involved with SRF and very justified in his negativity by, even at one point said, I'm in touch with Dayamata all the time. But and then just took it upon himself to be against Swami. And Swami, it, he saw him at this uh, public place and he walked up to him and he said, you know, even if I were Satan himself, it's just not worth it. It's just, you know, whatever it is, what it's doing to you, it's just not worth it. And the, the man actually said, I don't know why I hate you so much, but I just do. Swami said, it's like, brother, there's no point in this. But the man just couldn't. He just couldn't do it. But Swami was just like that. This is not helping you. It's not hurting me. It's hurting you. Swami made the comment once, which I've really meditated on a lot. It's very interesting. He said, whatever flows through you, whatever flows through a person, is going to be strongest at the source. Because whatever it is you're feeling, then you project it out. The impulse arises first within you, and then you try to offer it. You can feel tremendous love in your heart and then you try to give it to someone but only some of what you feel can ever come across. You know, it's kind of a joke in romantic relationships. Do you know how much I love you? And, you know, the little mommy and the baby. Oh, mommy, mommy loves you as big as the whole world. Mommy loves you. Just trying to get across what's in your heart. So whatever it is always affects the point of origin the most. So if, if your feelings are positive, that's wonderful. But if your feelings are negative, whatever negativity you manage to project onto someone else is always going to be less than the poison that passes through you. And when, when one has a, a negative thought of some kind, it does reach people because we're all interconnected. But the, the, the first one, the first casualty of it is yourself. It's a, it's a very strong incentive you know, for getting out of these things. We can get those darn vrittis just to calm down. <laughs> I have a kind of anti-vritti attitude. <laughs> if we could get a pill for it, it would be a good idea, wouldn't it? <laughs> I guess we have a method. It's called Kriya. <laughs> All right. Any questions or comments about any of that? We're really doing serious stuff tonight, aren't we? Okay. 
number 148. Henry Schaufelberger, yeah, Henry Schaufelberger, who later became Brother Anandamoy, was probably extremely glad to become Brother Anandamoy after being Henry Schaufelberger, although in his native German Switzerland it was probably easier. Brother Anandamoy, a disciple of the Masters, endured a series of physical inconveniences. I love that phrase. Physical inconveniences. First he broke a rib. Then a rash plagued him and made his life miserable. Then he broke another rib. He seemed to be getting a steady stream of such petty annoyances. I love these words. Petty annoyances, physical inconveniences. The master said to him one day, always more troubles, isn't it? But that's good. You have lots of work to do. That's why God wants to make you strong. We don't produce DDs here. DD is short for Doctor of Divinity. Our ministers don't receive their authority to teach with diplomas that declare they've completed a course of intellectual study. They win their right in the fire of divine testing. Isn't that sweet? And I love the way, I love that phrase, physical inconveniences. I think, I'm not sure if I said it in this class, I think I did, but this woman wrote me once about just a series of catastrophic things that were happening to her, and I wrote back to her and said, wonderful, looks like God is just really determined that you're going to become free in this lifetime. She wrote back to me and she said, I never thought you'd congratulate me for the catastrophes I'm living through, but it kind of just turned it. For her, I mean, it was an intuitive response on my part. I could have really hurt her feelings, but I somehow didn't cross my mind. It just seemed like the right answer. But in fact, we're, this is the the ego defines the purpose of life as ease and pleasure. The soul defines the purpose of life as divine freedom. This is exactly back to where we were when we were talking about Tom and my parents and. I mean, Tom's friend and all of that. It's like this instinctive response that difficulties are something that we should try to escape or that they shouldn't happen. It's a very, very, very fundamentally wrong attitude. When I was with Swamiji once and he was going through a, a whole... It was toward the end of his life, the last years. I don't remember exactly when, but he was just having a cascading series of problems. His diabetes was serious at that point. His heart was giving him all kinds of problems. He may have broken a rib or two at that time. Oh, I think what he had was the stress factors in his spine. He was having this terrible time until they figured out what it was. Just a lot of things. So he went to the dentist and there were no cavities. (laughs) And he came back and he said he had no cavities. And I just foolishly said, well, thank the Lord for little favors. And he got so stern he said, I thank God for everything he sends me. I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't let that stand even for a split second, even just as a joke. He, ab- he wanted me to hear it too, but he just absolutely repudiated it. You think about that. You see, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't an affectation. It was just how he felt. There's nothing wrong with what's been sent to me. Is it about, it's about Master. Maybe it's even in here where, where one of the nuns who was close to Master, was protesting, why does Divine Mother treat you this way? And he said with great sternness, don't say a single word against my Divine Mother. And, I mean, that was a real way of responding. I remember once early on in my life, I, I did something quite wrong, and Swamiji scolded me quite strongly. 
and somebody tried to comfort me by diminishing slightly his right to say it, his understanding of the situation, but he tried to comfort me by just separating me slightly. And I remember I just turned like this, don't ever talk to me like that. And it, it, I was pleased <laughs> that, that I, wasn't, I wasn't even tempted. In fact, I immediately recognized, get thee behind me, Satan. I just don't, I don't ever want that. I don't want to solve the problem by separating me from my source of freedom. And that was Swami, exactly. I mean, uh, all those years later, actually I never connected the two incidents till now, but it was exactly the same. So I know that it's spontaneous. It's that you instinctively know that, that, that you know, blasphemy has just been spoken. It's not merely like it's a mistake. It's blasphemy and you, you just don't want to. Blasphemy is very serious. You don't want to do it. And to repudiate what Divine Mother gives you and to pray for things to be other than she wants them it's just, it's not in your best interest. You don't want it to grow even for a second. Hmm. Any questions? Number 149. Oh dear. This is this great long one. Okay, well we can just, we'll just start it. Um, I was just, I'll just do this one piece by piece because they're all separated. The following words were among the last advice that Master gave to the monks. Interesting. No one can give you the desire for God. You must cultivate that desire in yourselves. God himself couldn't give it to you. For when he created human beings, he doesn't make them puppets. You must desire him yourself. Um, I was thinking of that quite in the context, again, going back to the beginning of the class, of what Tom was saying about that, the friend called regular people, but someone who's not consciously aware of the need for self-realization. And that's really what you're, um, really what you're up against with people. You can't make them want to live for God. If people want to live for their own satisfaction, and if they want life to step into their reality and meet their standards, whether it's to be a victim or what it is, you know, Someone who doesn't meditate and doesn't, who doesn't have a clear sense that the reality I experience outwardly emanates from the reality I have inside. That, that's the line in the sand. There's, it's, really the, it's, it's when you begin to realize that the actual battle is not with the world around me, but it is the way I respond and react to the world around me. You don't, you, it, it helps when you add God into that equation. And a lot of times, after people come here for a while, what Master's teaching gives them is the capacity to add God to that equation. Because often they have rejected the idea of God in favor of their own personal power to mold their destiny and to make things happen. But they've made that first shift. And that's a lot of the prosperity stuff and the secret stuff and the self-mastery over the world, you know, I can do it stuff, is just beginning to understand that somehow this emanates from inside of me. And so I begin to work with who I am inside. A whole lot of non-spiritual self-development is all about that. And it's a very positive step forward. 
because they have moved from the under, the thought that they are just helpless victims to the thought that I have some influence here. But it's 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 a limited reality because we can't control it. I, I remember in the 70s and 80s when a lot of those things were really cresting. I, we used to get refugees, what I called refugees from these... Refugees from the New Age is how I describe them <laughs> because the New Age was telling them that they could do anything they wanted and have anything they want. They could heal themselves and make themselves rich and and they couldn't. So they began to feel that there was something fundamentally wrong with them and so they were you know, wandering around feeling guilty and then eventually they would, some of them would find their way to here and I would have to try to explain to them no, it's just that the teaching is flawed. It's, it's true as far as it goes, but it's a, it's a false teaching. You, you, it's self-evident. You can't, I remember one poor woman, she had some kind of asthmatic condition and everybody kept telling her that she could heal it and she couldn't. You know, so it, not only did she have asthma, but she felt also like just a cosmic failure on, on the biggest scale. But no, she wasn't a failure at all. It's just that karma is just not that easy to shift. And sometimes God needs you to have asthma through your whole life. There's just nothing you can do. It was just what I was saying before. It's not what you have outwardly, but how you respond inwardly. But if people first don't understand even that it is a, about my own response to life not what life is doing to me but then the next step into that is to realize that we are in this dynamic relationship with a, a power that's so much greater than ourselves and what is that power and how do we really work with it And but if you don't want that that's what Master says there nobody, nobody can give it to you it's, it's like it's just a it's, a it's a vibratory level of development and you can't get it from just... Well, Garrison Keillor made the marvelous remark. He said, thinking that you can become... He used the word Christian. That you can become a Christian merely by sitting in church is like sitting in your garage and trying to become a car. <laughs> Which I just loved it. Merely sitting there doesn't make you any different than you are. And you can be sitting there in the hope that you'll learn to love God. But that's why we have to just cultivate it. That's why everything is about cultivating it. Because once that really begins to enter your frame of reference, that I'm really in a relationship here. I know whenever I would teach the Meditation One course, which I used to do many years ago, about the third class or so, I always made the subject, I mean, the point was devotion. But meditation is a relationship. And it has to be conducted like a relationship. Because meditation without God is just me pumping myself up. But true meditation, you're in a relationship. It's about receptivity. It's about somehow, and it's the oddest thing. I don't know, I don't know how to explain it to people who don't know it. But we talk about loving God. And sometimes I sort of hear those words and I think that must sound really odd to some people. But it doesn't sound odd if you do. And sometimes you love truth. Someone said to me once, he never thought about loving God, even now exactly, but what he loves is truth. And Swami himself at one point, when he was early on, when he was talking about what is God, but what he loved was truth. And what that meant was 
he was seeking a real he was seeking to know reality you know what is the actual reality of this experience that we're having and so it all just leads you however you call call it but you have this sense of something enduring that's bigger than me and eventually it becomes something that is so attractive to you uh, i've always been highly motivated by joy you know just like and and then you just get this sense that somehow it's there and loving it is not just oh i love you i love you i love you loving it I, um, once i had to give a class on devotion and i i just started from the point of view the, the origin of the word devotion is that you're devoted to it it's not just the word love it's that you're devoted to it and what are we devoted to devoted to the quest for joy devoted for the to the quest for truth uh, for the the quest for peace of mind and and when you're devoted to it that's a form of loving it emotion is quite secondary but what we're devoted to it obviously is what we love and we use that word i'm devoted to my hobbies i'm devoted to my children i'm devoted to my art implied under that is that you love it that's why you do it but nobody can make you do that you you do it yourself but you do it also by a deliberate act of will and that's the last part of it i remember somebody wrote to swamiji once and said you know i i, I want to get involved in something he was she was talking about the community i want to get involved in this or that but nothing draws me He said nothing's going to draw you until you start giving to it. He said you're just sitting there waiting for something to respond to you. He said but you have to start giving yourself to it. You have to become devoted to the quest. You have to become devoted to learning to love God in whatever form that takes whether it's bhakti or karma yoga or study. When someone asked me once which of the eight manifestations of God do I like? It was actually an interesting question. I said joy and wisdom. And when I really thought about myself that is that's always what I've been motivated by. I love the teachings. I love understanding things. I've always been devoted to understanding. And you know you wouldn't think of that as loving God but it is. Because wisdom is a manifestation of the divine and I I love the teachings. It's just so beautiful to see and joy. You know, being happy is just I've always been devoted to the quest for happiness. and then wow it all turned out to be god what do you know but i would never have known that i wouldn't if somebody just asked me about god i just i mean i remember i just kind of shrugged my shoulders i was i didn't even rise to the level of an agnostic it just like i didn't know it just wasn't the question but talk to me about truth and wisdom and talk to me about happiness and i was right there like that so it, but but we work on it and the more you study the teachings for example just the more you become devoted to them because they're so magnificent the more you participate in the sangha and make spiritual friends and find out about community the more you love what happens when you do that and it all leads back but it all has to be deliberate if you don't reach out to make friends of how is the community going to support you if you don't study the teachings how are you ever going to understand if you don't meditate how will you ever know what you have inside this is all that master saying it's up to you god is always the window the sun is always shining how wide you open the curtain is up to you that's your side of it okay that's tonight 
I think we just did three. We started at 145, and we started 149, but we didn't finish it. Can I borrow a pen?